Sport has the power to change the world. My name is Boise Kumalo, and my guest today is Lasty Moore, who is a legend in the game. In today's episode, Coach Last talks about coming to America at a young age, playing against Pelé, and his coaching career. Coach Klaus, how you doing? I'm doing fine, sir. And you? I'm good, thanks. How, how's the pandemic treating you so far? Well, you know, it's been a slow year. You know, a lot of activities have been canceled. Uh, it's slowly coming back now. So I think finally the end is in sight. I had my vaccination uh, about a month ago. Uh, activities are resuming again. Governor of Michigan just opened up more activities. Uh, so I think now we have, we have um, the worst behind us. And I think the, the future looks pretty promising now. Nice. How was the vaccine shot? Did it hurt or no? Did not hurt at all. Okay. <laughs> so I guess you are glad that you took it then. I'm glad I took it. You know, I'm of a certain age, uh, Boise, where uh, people are more susceptible to, uh, to getting the pandemic. So uh, I'm very happy uh, that I got it. And, and I hope that uh, everybody gets it. So what was it like growing up in Holland? Well, I lived there the first... 14 years of my life. I lived in a small town of 3,000 people where everybody knew everybody. It was kind of out in the country. Uh, so I had a fantastic youth. It was a kind of youth where you had a lot of freedom. You could leave the house in the morning during vacation, come back at night. Your parents would not worry about you. Uh, so it was really a, a, a stressless uh, kind of youth. And I uh, played a lot of soccer, played a lot of street soccer. Every day after school, we would go to, uh, to, uh, to an open field on a sandlot and play soccer. So it was, it was really a fantastic youth that probably no longer exists anywhere. Yeah. Now, did you ever play for any organized team while you were in Holland? When I was in Holland, we had a, we had a soccer club in the, in, in the village that I lived. Uh, we had two senior teams. One played on Sunday, the other one played on Saturday. Okay. Um, youth soccer, the first youth team that, uh, that the club had started at under 16. So I left at age 14. So I did not play organized youth soccer. If I, if I had stayed there, then I, then I would have joined a local club. Okay. What position did you play? I played right wing. I was very fast, Boise. What kind of player were you? I, I was a, I, later in my career, I converted to a right fullback. So I became one of the first modern fullbacks that oh. like to overlap down the, uh, down the sideline. But I was basically a, a player who um, had a great, um, a great motivation to play. Um, I loved the, the game of soccer as much uh, today as I did then. It has always stayed with me. Um, but I basically relied a lot on my speed. I did not have uh, great technique. Uh, it was good enough, you know, yes. but it was not, uh, not, not, not exceptional. Uh, but because I had the right motivation um, and I was very uh, aggressive and, and, and so I became, I, became, I became an effective player. Okay. When did you move to Michigan and why? 
1956, my parents kidnapped me and brought me to Michigan. <laughs> they kidnapped you? <laughs> they kidnapped me. They didn't ask me if I wanted to come. Right. You know, that was in the 1950s, you know, they had a television show in America in 1950, in the 1950s, Father Knows Best. And that was about, you know, father, father made the rules and, and, and you listen to your father. And that, that's kind of the way it was at that time. <laughs> so when you, moved, when you moved to Michigan, did you play soccer too or no? Well, when I came to Michigan, we moved to Holland, Michigan. We, we, we moved to Holland, Michigan, because when, when immigrants moved to another country, they generally moved to an area where there are other people from their country. So Holland, Michigan was kind of a Dutch community. But there was absolutely no soccer. There was a big, big letdown. There was not one soccer field in Holland, Michigan. The high schools did not have soccer. There was no youth soccer. There was no senior soccer at the time. So that was a big letdown. So what did you do with your time? Well, about six months after we came, uh, a bunch of immigrants, uh, all in their 20s and 30s, uh, started a local soccer club called the Holland Hotspurs. They were called the Hotspurs because the sponsor of the team was from England, from London, and his favorite team was the Hotspurs. So that team started in the fall of 1956, and I trained with them. And then in the spring of 1957, the West Michigan Soccer League was started. So that was a league of uh, clubs for example, Ann Arbor had a club, Lansing had a club, Grand Haven, Holland, uh, St. Joseph. So that was a league of, uh, of, uh, of adult teams of basically all immigrants, people that came off the boat. There were no Americans playing at that time. So that's kind of how I got started in organized soccer in this country. Oh, wow, that's interesting. So how did you, how did you end up at Michigan State then? Well, it's an interesting story. Um, I went to high school. I graduated from high school and was not sure what I wanted to do. So I went to Grand Rapids Community College. They did not have a soccer team, but I continued to play with Holland Hotspurs. And then one summer, I was at the local beach here in Holland, Michigan, Ottawa Beach. Yeah. Uh, and I was kicking a ball around with some friends. And there was a lifeguard uh, from Michigan State uh, who was working there. Uh, and he saw me play and, and uh, he took me aside and he said, you look, you look like you're, you're a pretty good soccer player. He says, I go to Michigan State. Did you know that Michigan State had a soccer team? I said, I didn't have a clue. I hadn't been in the country all that long, so I didn't know much about collegiate soccer. Right. Yeah, I said, you might want to pursue it. Well, I said, okay, yeah, why don't you give me the name of the coach and an address and, and I'll send him a letter. So I sent the coach a letter. I told him a little bit about my background. And the coach at that time was Gene Kinney. And a couple uh, weeks later, he got in touch with me and he invited me to come to Michigan State. And I don't know if he had scouted me. Uh, Michigan State sometimes would play some games against teams in, in the West Michigan Soccer League. But he took me, uh, he, uh, he took me on a tour to Michigan State, right. took me out for dinner, offered me a little scholarship, and that's how I ended up. So this lifeguard, this lifeguard whose name I don't know, has been the most instrumental person in my life. <laughs> Because without him, if I had not met that lifeguard, 
my life would have been totally different. I bet. Now, yeah. how, 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 what kind of scholarship did he give you? How much did he give you? As I, I, I had, I had uh, tuition in the fall. Okay. Yeah. Nice. But I had, I had to pay for my own room and board. Later on, I got a full scholarship or half scholarship, you know, but my tuition was taken care of. And Michigan State at that time was really one of the few universities in the country that actually offered scholarship to players. Hmm. What did you study at Michigan State? Criminal justice. Have you ever used it? Well, I found out later that, you know, criminal justice was probably not the right major for me. I, 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 I always have a problems with authority figures. Right. And, you know, it's a very rigid, rigid uh, kind of profession. Uh, I did not go into it. I, I went into a related field. When I graduated, I got a job for an insurance company uh, where I had to investigate workman's compensation cases, uh, auto accidents. So it was, a, it was investigative work. So when I graduated from Michigan State, I got a job with an insurance company called Insurance of Wausau, Wisconsin. They were primarily an, an industrial insurance company. Hmm. And they would ask you uh, what part of the country you might want to work in. Well, I had been to the East Coast once when Michigan State played in the finals, NCAA finals against Navy. And that was played Brown University. And I really liked that area. So I suggested maybe I could go, I could go to, uh, to Massachusetts. Uh, and that's where they sent me. And so then I, then I moved to Massachusetts right after I graduated. Nice. Now, coming from Holland and playing soccer at Michigan State, did you ever have any ambitions of playing professional soccer? Well, there really was no professional soccer at that point. Okay. So it, 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 was, it was not really even, even a dream as such because the only soccer that was being played was all amateur soccer. So I did not really have any ambitions at Michigan State that at some point I might play professional soccer now. Hmm. I did not know that. That's interesting to hear. Yeah, it, it, you know, I graduated from Michigan State in 1965, uh, and and professional soccer, I think, started a little bit later, 1968, 69. But it was kind of a fledgling operation, you know. So most of the soccer was amateur soccer, and it was pretty much ethnic soccer around the big cities. Uh, the only people who really played soccer were people who um, who immigrated here. Mm. It's great. It, it, that's another thing that's crazy to me. Like you say, the only people that play soccer is people who are immigrated here. But now yeah. when you look at it, the, most of the people who play soccer now are people with money. Well, wow, that's totally people, changed. Yeah, the people that but are I, immigrated here cannot even afford to play. <laughs> I know. But when I came to Michigan State, we had two native-born Americans on the team. So everybody was like me. Everybody was someone that came here at a young age with their family. So there were only two Americans on the team. And if you look at the Michigan State team today, you know, maybe there are two foreigners on the team, if any. So yeah. that, had, that is how the game has changed. Yeah, it has changed big time. Yeah. Uh, you played for Cleveland Stars. How did the Cleveland Stars find out about you? Well, before I played for the Cleveland Stars, when I moved to Massachusetts. I played for a team called the Boston Astros. They were kind of a semi-professional operation. Uh, players were getting paid, you know, a bit of money. 
sometimes at the beginning of the season, we would get paid a hundred bucks, middle of the season, 50 bucks, end of the season, nothing. <laughs> beginning of the season, we would go by bus. Yeah. Uh, middle of the season, we would go in a van that the owner had. By the end of the season, we were going by car. So that, that, that was kind of the evolution of professional soccer. <laughs> but I played for that team for a couple of years in, in Boston. Played against Pelé, played against Santos. Santos made a tour of the United States in 1969, I believe. Hmm. So I had the opportunity to play against Pelé. So, you know, I got into coaching in Massachusetts at the high school level. I went back to school at Boston University uh, to get a degree in physical education because I knew while I was working for the insurance company, I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life and I wanted to be a coach. So I, I was coaching a high school team and part-time I would go back to college and take uh, get a master's degree in physical education. And once I got that degree, I applied for jobs around the country and Cleveland State University had an opening and I applied and that's how I ended up in Cleveland. Mm. Let me back up a little bit here. You talked a little bit about Pelé. What was it like to play against him? Well, it was kind of a dream, you know? <laughs> um, it, it, it was really a dream because they, it, it was not just Pelé. They had, they, had, they had one of the best teams in the world at that time, Santos. And um, I remember it was, a, it, was, it was a night. It was very, very foggy. They had expected a big crowd. The game was at Boston University. But because of the fog, you could barely see one goal from the other goal. Uh, and the crowd was very small. I think we had about 1,000 to 1,500 people there. So that was, that was kind of a letdown. Right. But, you know, anytime, anytime you have an opportunity to be on the same field with, uh, with someone like Pelé, you know, that, that's a big honor. So that's something I'll never forget. Mm, that's interesting. Uh, I happened to watch a show yesterday. I don't know if you've watched it on Pelé. It's on Netflix. Did you get a chance to watch it? I've watched it. it. Fantastic. What's your take on that show? Well, I think it's a great show. And, and, and I have met Pelé several times after that. Uh, so I played against him in, in Boston, but I also met him again in Cleveland when they play a pre-season uh, pre game. They were on tour again, this time with the Cosmos. Mm. Um, but later on, I don't want to get too far ahead, but later on, I was an assistant coach for the Los Angeles Aztecs, and the head coach was Claudio Coutinho, a Brazilian. And he knew Pelé very well. So I had dinner with Pelé several times when the Cosmos would come into town. So I got to know him a little bit. Oh, that was good. So did he speak English at that time or just Portuguese? He spoke, um, he spoke, he spoke some English at that time. Mm. After he joined the Cosmos, I think he picked it up. Cleveland Stars. So you were playing and also coaching. How did you balance yeah. it? Through? Yeah, I was... I was uh, I was, I was coaching at Cleveland State University and I was playing for the, for the Cleveland Stars. So um, I had to have very good games. Otherwise I would hear from my players at Cleveland State that I had a bad game. So it put a little <laughs> additional pressure on me. Right. How, how did you recruit your players for Cleveland State? Well, Cleveland State at that time too. I came there in 1972 uh, and the soccer around Cleveland was very much ethnic. You had different nationalities. You had Yugoslavs, you had Serbians, you had Germans. So the team at Cleveland State pretty much reflected the community. 
most of the players that we had at the, on the team at that time were players whose parents had immigrated to this country and they had been playing youth soccer in Cleveland for some time. But I would also recruit uh, a number of foreign players. I had one or two players from Bermuda. I had one or two players from, uh, from England. So it was primarily local ethnic players, uh, but I also had a number of foreign players that I recruited. What did you look for when you were recruiting these players? Well, the first thing I looked for is a player comfortable with the ball. Uh, that to me is the basis of any player. Is he comfortable with the ball? Is he, is he technically strong on the ball? Is he good in tight spaces with the ball? And then you look at other aspects of the game. Then you look at his understanding of the game, his decision-making. Uh, you look at the mentality of the player. Is he a hard worker? Uh, is he listen? Uh, but, you know, everything starts with, 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 with technique. If you're a good, technically strong player, then some of the other aspects will fall into place. Yes. How many years did you coach at uh, Cleveland State? I was there from 72 to 78. Nice. And did you ever win anything big at Cleveland State? Well, my, my, my last year, that this was a 1977 year, um, we advanced to the NCAA quarterfinals. We played the game in Cleveland. It was played in November. It was our home game against SIU Edwardsville. They were ranked just ahead of us. We were ranked like number two in the country at that time. So that game was played in snow. We could not find an appropriate field without snow. It had snowed a couple of days before. So there were a couple of inches of snow on the field. Mm. And a couple of volunteers had, uh, had uh, with shovels basically cleared the penalty boxes. But the rest of the field was covered with snow. Right. And I had players on the team, for example, from Bermuda who had never seen snow. So here we had to play in the snow. So that game after 90 minutes was uh, was 1-1. And then you went into overtime and there were no penalty kicks at that time. So you you would just keep playing, you know, successive overtimes until somebody had won. <laughs> so that game went 125 minutes. Wow. Uh, and, and we lost that game. So that was a big, uh, a big letdown. But I think at that time, we were good enough to maybe win the NCAA championship. The other honor I had at Cleveland State, I was named after that, the um, um, NSCAA, the National Soccer Coach Association. I was named uh, Coach of the Year in Division One, So that was a big honor. What was it like to win that award? Well, it, it, it was bittersweet. Um, the NCAA, NSCAA convention is always in January. Um, and I knew that I was up for the award and I had my plane reservation ready to go to Boston a week or a couple of days, maybe two days, three days before the, uh, the, um, convention took place. Uh, my father passed away. So I never did make it to Boston. Somebody else accepted the award. Uh, so I will always remember winning the award at a time when my father passed away and he never got to know it. So that was kind of bittersweet. Yeah, sorry to hear that. Now, back in those days, did you as a coach have to have any qualifications or you just got the job because of your playing background? I think, I think for example, when I got the job at Cleveland State, I had really very little coaching background. 
I had just been a high school coach and a part-time high school coach. They were looking for a coach who had a bit of a foreign background because so many players were ethnic players whose parents came here or they came at a young age. So I kind of fit that criteria. Um, and they were looking at a, for a coach, I think, that had played at a good level in, in college. And I played at Michigan State. So the fact that I played at Michigan State and the fact that I had a foreign background, I think, got me that job. How many years did you play at Cleveland Stars? I played at Cleveland Stars, I think, for three years. You know, and then, then I, was, I, was, I was in my 30s that, you know, and then, then I just decided, you know, the time has come. Younger players were running past me, so. <laughs> you didn't have any more speed? <laughs> <laughs> I read something like uh, on the internet that uh, the Cleveland Stars name got changed to the Cleveland Cobras. Yeah. What was the reason? The, well, I think the reason was... I think that the Cleveland Stars had new, got new ownership. Um, they were not drawing particularly well. And I think they just decided on a name change that, that it might be better for marketing to start with a brand new, brand new name, you know. Where did you go after playing in Cleveland? Well, my, my playing career was, was pretty much finished then. So I was at Cleveland State until 1978. Okay. And in 1978, in the fall, there was a community college near us, and I would sometimes watch games there for recruiting purposes. So I went to a soccer game between Cuyahoga Community College and Macomb Community College in Detroit. And while I was standing there watching the game, I got into a conversation with, with, a, with, a, with a gentleman standing next to me. Uh, he was from England and he was watching his son play. And we got into a discussion and then I found out, he told me that he was the general manager of a new professional club in Detroit, the Detroit Express in the North American Soccer League. So we had a game that night with Cleveland State and I invited him to the game. And then about a week later, he called me up and he wanted to know if I might be interested in an assistant coaching position with the Detroit Express. And I went up for an interview and then I made a decision. I wanted to move up to the next level. And then I ended up in professional soccer with the Detroit Express as an assistant coach. What was it like to coaching professional players? I had a bad experience there <laughs> I, I, because I was hired I was hired by the general manager. Okay. I was not hired by the coach. So the coach that came in was from England. His name was Ken Furphy. Uh, and he also brought in an assistant coach. So I never had a conversation with a coach prior to actually joining the club. And as it was, Ken Furphy, the coach, really did not have much use for American players. Uh, he looked down upon them. It was at a time where only two American players had to play. Mm. So most of the players were foreigners. Most of the players were from England. So he really did not have a very good um, mentality about American players. And, and I did not have a good relationship with him. Uh, and eventually we had, uh, we had a bit of an argument at one of the games. And, and I decided to leave the club. So I did not have a good experience, sir.
What was the argument about? The argument was, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, the argument was about, we were in the playoffs and we were going to go to Tampa. And I did not travel to away games. We also had a reserve team of American players and I coached that team. Um, but I wanted to go to Tampa with the team for the playoff game. Uh, and I knew I was not on the list. And then I spoke to, to my friend, a general manager. And I said, look, I said, I'd like to go to, uh, to Tampa. Wally said, let me speak to the coach. Well, then in the locker room before another game, uh, the coach came up to me and he said, well, I hear that you've talked to the general manager uh, about going to this game. He said, just want you to know you're not going. So then I got into a heated argument in the locker room in front of the players. And that was the end of my <laughs> career with <laughs> Detroit Express. So right up there. A learning, a, learning, a learning experience. Yeah, but we all learn every time, you know, so that's- We do. Yeah, we, we do. Uh, yeah. After the Detroit Express, where did you go? After Detroit Express, um, I was looking for a job, you know. I mean, I've been Boise with, with eight clubs as a coach or assistant coach, head coach that no longer exist. So I always had to hop from one situation to another situation, you know. But after the uh, Express experience, I got a job as an assistant coach with the Detroit Lightning. And this was when MISL, Major Indoor Soccer League, was just starting. And they had an outfit. The ownership was a television company from, uh, from California. And they bought a franchise and they placed it in Detroit, the Detroit Lightning. And they played at Cobo Hall. Mm. Uh, and I was an assistant coach there with Terry Fisher, who also coached uh, in, in the NESL after that. You, you did not get fired for that job, did you? I did not get fired for that job. The club folded after one year. <laughs> <laughs> so how was, the, how was the coaching indoor soccer? Well, indoor soccer, you know, at that time, it was brand new. And major indoor soccer league was just starting. And really, there was not much professional outdoor soccer. It was kind of the waning days of the North American Soccer League. Clubs were folding kind of left and right. And then somebody came up with the idea of, of, of introducing indoor soccer. We play with boards. They felt that people are familiar with hockey, a lot of similarities between hockey and uh, indoor soccer. And they felt that maybe outdoor soccer was, was not yet ready for prime time. Mm. And so they started with indoor soccer. And I thought indoor soccer at that time, you know, I coached later uh, professional indoor soccer in Canton, Ohio. Um, but at that time, it was really the, the only professional game in town. Why did a lot of teams fold back in those days? I think what happened to the North American Soccer League, at one time there were 24 clubs. Um, and then slowly, but surely one club, two clubs per year would fold after 1980. The primary reason was that not enough people came to games. Um, so attendance was, was not huge. And I think the owners that uh, owned the clubs had big ambitions, bigger than they would not have, they did not have long-term ambitions. They wanted, I think, uh, immediate success. And, and that was not happening at the time because the game wasn't known well enough. 
And I think they had difficulty finding sponsors. And I think they spent a hell of a lot more money than they had coming in. You had teams like the New York Cosmos who spent a lot of money on players. They had Beckenbauer there. They had Belay there. They had, they had world-class players there. And so they spent a lot of money. And then other clubs also kind of felt compelled to also spend money uh, on players. We, for example, had Trevor Francis playing with us in the summer and, and he got paid a lot of money. So basically they spent over the years more money than they had coming in. And I think at the time they did not see a long-term future for the game. And then when a few clubs started folding, then it became a domino effect. And then, you know, sooner or later, by 1984-85, uh, the North American Soccer League that one time had 24 clubs in most of the major cities, um, you know, went, went, went belly up and it stopped. Yeah. Now, you coach indoor soccer and outdoor soccer. What's the difference yeah. between the two? Well, they're not alike at all. They're, they're, they're totally different games, you know. One is played six aside, five players plus a goalkeeper. You're playing on a very small area, um, 200 yards long, 30, 40 yards wide. So it's basically a game that's, that's played in very confined spaces. So the players that generally have done well indoor are players that have technical skill, that are very good in tight situations. But it's a totally, it's a totally different game. The rules are totally different. Um, and as, a, as it was, you know, indoor soccer did not make it in the long term either. Outdoor soccer eventually came back. Yeah. Now, as a person who's seen uh, the game in America grow, where do you think the game is growing? Going? Well, you know, I, I have seen the evolution of the game from where I came to this country in 1956. And there were, for example, just in my town here in Holland, Michigan, there were no soccer fields. There was not one soccer goal. Nobody kicked the ball. And now, if you go to Holland, Michigan, you see soccer fields all over the place. The kids playing all over the place. So the game, the game has now become an accepted game. The North American Soccer League, which eventually folded, what it did do, it exposed the game to a lot of people. And it got a lot of kids playing soccer, which did not play soccer before. And so I think the North American Soccer League is, is one of the primary reasons that soccer is so popular today. In the 80s, 70s, when I sat with coaches, we would always uh, talk about when do you think this game will really be big in this country? And then we would say, well, maybe five years, maybe 10 years. But see, that discussion is not going on anymore. Nobody talks anymore about, well, when will this game be accepted? When will it make big time when will professional soccer be popular because the game has made it it is now here to stay it has become totally accepted so that is the change from the past you think the game has grown then well the game has grown tremendously i mean you look for example at if you look at professional soccer you have major league soccer which is like 30 teams uh, then you have the usl which is different divisions you have the champions league you have league one you have league two mm. uh, and you have I think if you include all of the teams, then, then, then you probably have 80 to 100 professional teams in this country. So, and then even at the smaller level, uh, at the semi-pro level, um, and then I'm talking about teams like Detroit City or Ann Arbor. Detroit City, for example, has been a huge success um, as an, basically as an amateur summer team. 
uh, and they were so successful, they have now joined a new professional league. So the game now has become big. Speaking about Detroit City Football Club, you were also a, a supervisor there or technical yeah. supervisor. Yeah. What did you do? What does that mean? Well, okay, several things. Um, I would analyze games. I would analyze Detroit City games. I would write up an evaluation report. I would give that to Ben Pierman uh, for his review. We would discuss it sometimes. Um, I would also uh, scout opponents, come up with, a, with an evaluation, uh, a scouting report of the opposing teams. Uh, I was instrumental in looking for players, making contact with, uh, with college coaches, watching players play. Uh, and I would get feedback on, on training sessions, do a little bit of work with individual players. So that was pretty much my function there. Interesting. Talking about when you came to the U.S. and where you, when you were in the Netherlands, you played street soccer. And uh, looking at modern soccer now, do you think street soccer is needed? Yes or no? Well, I think I think I think street soccer is 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 pretty much history all over the world. Only in developed, underdeveloped countries, African countries, some Asian countries, do kids still play street soccer or they play on empty lots. Uh, because what has happened in the Netherlands, for example, just like here, um, kids do not play outside so much anymore. So if clubs do not organize uh, youth teams, uh, kids do not play. They have, when I grew up, there was no television, for example. Now they have television, now they have computers, uh, now they have telephones, now they have social media. So if adults do not go out of their way to organize kids to play soccer, uh, then the kids will not play. So that, that is something that has really changed. But street soccer to me kind of remains the basis of becoming a good soccer player. So I think at young ages, uh, coaches should try to emulate kind of the street soccer scene in their training sessions. When you're talking about kids six, seven, eight, you, you, you devise situations which, uh, which somewhat emulate are similar to street soccer, one-on-ones, um, two-on-twos, three-on-threes at the most, uh, giving kids a lot of freedom. Uh, so I think just because there's no street soccer anymore where kids play on their own, I think coaches can kind of organize their training sessions so the features of youth soccer or street soccer are still there. Okay. Now, MLS and U.S. soccer are working together on uh, mini pitches where they put in all these little small pitches around the country. Yeah. Kind of like for kids to play so uh, street soccer. Yeah. Do yeah. you think that will help? I think that'll help tremendously, you know, and, and, and this is, for example, what, 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 what they do in Holland and Holland, they call, they, they have a, a methodology for young kids, what they call the twin games, where they have two fields adjacent next to each other and kids play two V two. And maybe they have two substitutions on the sideline and the coach stands between the two fields, there's no referees, um, the kids call their own fouls, um, there are no corner kicks. So the, the emphasis is on getting kids a lot of ball touches. Uh, 
Right. And so small-sided games for young players is, is really the basis of the game today. Now, I know you're talking about the two fields and the coach being in the middle. Yeah. Like, go to a lot of sessions within the country. You'll see a lot of coaches at the young age just coaching the, the young players. Now, what's your take on those coaches, you know, just giving a lot of feedback on players who don't even know what they're doing? I think that depends on the age, of course. I think, you know, before the age of eight, they don't need any coaching necessarily. They just need some, some, some direction. But basically, kids six, seven years old, they just need to play. They just need to touch the ball. And you want to make sure that the kids have fun. Because if you have fun, and if you become a little bit better at it, uh, then you will stick with it. But if you don't have fun at a young age, and this is what's happening uh, a little bit in this country, perhaps a lot of kids are, are stopping playing when they're 12, 13 years of age because they don't enjoy it anymore. So the purpose for having fun is to, is, is to stay with the game. And if you're six, seven years old and you like the game, then you continue to play. Yeah. I know you are also the, an instructor for, for U.S. soccer. When you were an instructor, what did you look for in the coaches? Well, yeah, some time ago, I was an instructor with, with, with the, with the uh, U.S. soccer uh, B license. Um, that whole system has been, has been changed now. So we have, you have, um, it has been updated. Uh, but basically what you look for in coaches is, to me, uh, is an eagerness to learn and to be, and to be, and to be open-minded and to give them a pretty good idea of what, what the basis of the game is all about. And the basis of the game is being able to control the ball. Uh, so you're in charge of the ball. So the ball is not the enemy. Uh, and to make sure that your training sessions um, teach the basic fundamentals of the game in a way what would what the players enjoy the game. So I think that's kind of what I look for in, in, in a youth coach. Um, you have to have a lot of enthusiasm and you have to look at the game a little bit from the perspective of the player and not to expect too much. Just let the kids play. And then the better players, when they become older, uh, will stand out. Right. What about the college coaches? What do you look for in them? Well, in college coaches, you know, the college game has really changed too. Uh, and, and you have different divisions. You have, you know, division one, two, and three. Division one coaches um, are very much uh, result-oriented. Um, the problem with, 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 with college soccer a little bit is, is the short season. Uh, they've been trying for years now to also add a spring season. Uh, but college coaches, to me, they're, they're teachers, you know. And they get players when they're 18 years of age. They come from different backgrounds. Um, so I think a, a, a college coach has to be a good teacher. Uh, he has to have a good knowledge of, uh, of, of modern tactics. Um, and he has to be a coach, you know, who, um, you know, who can inspire players to um, – who has enthusiasm for the game, who loves the game. Right. What about the professional coach? Well, professional coaches, you know, professional coaches by and large, if you look at them today, almost all of them have played at a pretty good level. Uh, you still have coaches perhaps that have not played at a great level when they were younger, but most of the coaches now come out of the professional ranks 
So they had been trained as professional players. They know what is involved, the ins and outs. Um, and professional coaches, you know, it's pretty much about results. You have to, uh, you, you, you have, you have to win games. And if you don't win games, then, um, uh, and then, then, then you will be, be fired eventually, you know? Uh, but I think the biggest thing in coaching, whether it's college coach, professional coach, youth coach, you, you have to have a little bit of a philosophy about the game, you know, and that doesn't have to be everybody's same philosophy, but you have to have a pretty good idea of how you want to play, what you think fans would like to see, you know, and, and in Holland, for example, it's very important that, that teams play attractive soccer. So it's not just that you have to win, but, you, but, but when you win, you also have to play beautiful. Right. <laughs> but then you have countries like Italy, for example, where it's just about winning. People don't <laughs> care. You just need to win. But in Holland, you have to play attractive soccer as well. Right. Now, what is your philosophy as a coach? Yeah, my philosophy as a coach, um, and, and, and most coaches will probably say this, you know, um, but I am very much a coach who, is, is, who likes to press high, uh, likes to get the ball back early. Right. Uh, but I'm also very much a coach who, who looks to, to, to get into the attacking third relatively quickly. So I'm not a coach who is necessarily a big fan of, 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 a, of a slow buildup, one defender passing to the other defender, to the midfield, back to a defender. Uh, that, that kind of soccer, I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm not a big fan of. So I always tell players, you know, when we get the ball, look, look to play the ball forward. Try to beat the first line of confrontation. So I like to play with a good pace. Uh, I like to dictate the game, but of course, everything is dictated is dependent upon the players that you have available. You know, and Holland say they say you you have to row you have to row your boat with the oars that you have available. So you may want to play a certain system or a certain style, but if you don't have the players, then then you have to adjust obviously. Do you still speak Dutch? See, I came here at a young age. Uh, and then you start speaking English relatively quickly. Uh, so you, you have to work at it to keep it up. So I used to run soccer camps, Midwest Soccer Academy, and I used to do tours. I did that for 25 years. Then I sold the business in 1998. So I would have like 1,500 kids coming to my camps. And then we also would take them on tours. We've been to Holland, Spain, Italy. Uh, Scandinavian countries, Brazil, uh, and I would bring over um, a lot of Dutch coaches, maybe 15 to 20 that would come here for the summer and work at my soccer camps. And then, of course, the, 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 the native tongue was always used, you know, then we would speak Dutch. Right. And, and I also make it a point to go back to Holland every year for a couple of weeks. And I do a lot of reading in Dutch. So that's kind of how I keep it up. But I speak a little bit with, with an American accent. When I come to, when I come to, to Holland now, they say, where are you from? <laughs> you know, even though I'm native, but I have a little bit of an English accent, I am told. What's your take on women's soccer? Well, I think women's soccer, that to me, is the same as men's soccer, you know. Um, it's, a, it's the same game. And, and, and whether you know, one sex plays it or whether the other sex plays it, it's all, it's all, it's all the same to me, you know. Um, women, and women are just like men in that respect, 
you know, they, 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 they play all kinds of sports. So I look upon women's soccer just, just like I do with men's soccer. I think it's a, it's a fantastic activity and a great sport. Lately, with taking the knee, people not, you know, uh, want to listen to the national anthem. What's yeah. your take on that? Well, I think it's fantastic, you know. I think it's fantastic. And I'm a big admirer of, of uh, the woman soccer player, Rapinoe, for example. Um, every athlete has to do what they feel is right. And certain athletes like LeBron James, among others, have very strong feelings about where this country is, where it has been, where it is going. Um, and then they want to make a stand and they want to make sure that other people recognize what the situation is. And one way by doing that is by taking a knee, because then by taking a knee, um, you're basically giving a message uh, to people who are watching that, that you feel quite strongly about certain inequities in society. And you want to bring that to the forefront. And one way, one way by doing that is, is, is by taking a knee. I don't think it has any, anything to do with disrespect. I think it is primarily um, and, 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 and a form of behavior where you want to show the rest of the world that you feel strongly about certain issues. Well, someone might say players should just play and politics should be politicians. What do you think? No, I don't think that at all. I think, um, I think players are role models. Players are looked up to. And players are just like other human beings. Um, if they have something to say, they should say it because quite often, if an athlete says something, it has more impact. And if you see inequities in our society, uh, just because you're a player, why should you shut up about that? You might, you might, for example, if you were not a player, you might, with your colleagues at work, talk about certain things. So I think athletes have a, have a, have a, have, um, if they want to, they have an opportunity to bring things to the forefront, which otherwise would be hidden. So there's a debate going on now between LeBron James and Slatan Rubic. Uh, and, 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 you know, Slatan says, well, you know, athletes should just play. And LeBron James says, well, you're not going to shut me up. When I see something that is not right, I'm going to speak up about it. So I'm, I'm with LeBron James. What's your take on Black Lives Matter? Uh, Black Lives Matter is, is a movement, um, and, you know, in my view, um, to bring to the forefront um, basically issues that have to do with racism. And we had, for example, in this country, slavery for a couple hundred years. People were put in boats against their will. Nobody volunteered to come here. Many died on their way over. Then they were slaves for a couple of centuries. Then they were set free without any kind of reparations, without any land being given to them. They had no education. They were just being set free. So then these people needed jobs. There were only jobs with their former slave owners. So they went back to work for the former slave owners as indentured servants. Then you had James Jim Crow after that, where there was all kinds of discrimination. 
blacks were prevented from voting, for example. And then so slowly but surely the laws have changed. You know, we had a civil rights era in Martin Luther King, for example. So the, the laws have been changed, but people's view of blacks or other minority groups have not necessarily changed. So in a way, we are, we are still fighting the same battles that previous generations have fought, you know? Sure. And I think if you're brought up in a home where the parents, for example, are, have brace, racist views, there's a good chance you will grow up that way as well. And we are still a long way from having an equal society. I feel like I'm in a history class right now, listening to <laughs> Well, I think, I think one problem with this country is we don't teach enough black history. You know, I don't think people really have studied the experience of, 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 of people being captured, put on a ship, sent to another country. Everybody who is in this country either is a native Indian or they came here voluntarily. Well, we have one group of people who came here involuntarily. And then you didn't, we didn't treat them particularly well when we set them free, you know? And, and so there's, there's still huge areas of discrimination in this country. And I think anytime an athlete stands up and, and sheds a little bit of light on that, I think that's fantastic. Nice. Let's talk about soccer now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You, you played against Pelé, you've seen Pelé play. Now, yeah. in the modern game, do you think Pelé is better than Messi and Ronaldo? To me, Messi is the best ever. Uh, and I have seen all the great players play. You know, I've seen Pelé play, I've seen, uh, I've seen Maradona play, I've seen Johan Cruyff play. Um, but I think in my book, and it's, a, it's, a, it's an argument you really never win because everybody has their favorite. But to me, Messi is the best overall player that I have seen play technically, but also tactically. His vision, his decision making. But, you know, every player is a little bit different. You know, Johan Cruyff was a great player. I think what the difference maybe with Johan Cruyff, he was kind of a leader on the field. And he could maybe make players around him better players, you know, where you have a Maradona and a Maradona, I think, was pretty much an individual, individualistic player, a great one on one player uh, who perhaps did not make other players around him play better. But a player like Johan Cruyff was very instrumental in also being a little bit of a coach on the field. And, and so he could influence tactics just by making certain decisions on his own. So everybody has something. But Messi has always been my favorite. I'm surprised Johan Cruyff is not your favorite since you're from Holland. Well, you tell. I think as a as a player, as a player, you know, you you look at look at him technically, tactically. There are different there are different criteria you could use in judging, you know, who's an effective player. So I just said that Johan Cruyff was a, was 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 a player who I think could make other players around him better. Uh, Messi is a little bit like that too. Uh, but then you have like a Maradona, for example. I don't think Maradona necessarily made other players around him better, but Maradona was so good individually, one-on-one, -on -one, that, that that was the kind of player that he was, you know. But yeah, I'm a big Johan Cruyff fan because Johan Cruyff really has kind of revolutionized the game with his ideas, you know. Right. Who is the best coach in the modern game? 
I, you know, then, then you come up with the usual, you know, Pep Guardiola, you know, <laughs> Pep Guardiola, you know, I think he's, he's probably the best coach because he has proven himself to be the best coach, you know, in Spain and in different cultures, you know, not just in his own country. So, you know, he, he became champion with Barcelona. He became champion with uh, Bayern Munich. Uh, now he's going to be champion again with, uh, with, with Man City. You know, and he's a bit of a Johan Cruyff disciple. Uh, so I think Guardiola is probably the best best coach in the game today. If you had to pick right now between U.S. soccer national team and Holland national team, who would you pick? Well, right now, the U.S. national team I would pick because U.S. national team is more experienced. But the future of the U.S. national team is very, very good. Because most of the players now that play in the U.S. national team, they are playing abroad. They're playing for top teams. They're playing for Chelsea. They're playing for Bayern, Bayern, uh, Bayern Munich. Um, they're playing for diff for top teams now, and they're and they're actually getting playing time. So it used to be that an American player would go abroad, uh, he'd be sitting on the bench. But now these players are actually playing, starting. So the future of the U.S. national team now is very, very good because these are all young players as well, all between the ages of 18 and 22. And so I predict a great future for the U.S. national team. What do you think about soccer in the inner cities? Because if you go around like Detroit, I mean, you don't see a lot of inner city kids play soccer. But if you go 10 minutes out, you see a lot of suburban kids playing soccer. Well, when I was with Detroit City, I was instrumental in starting a youth soccer program with the Police Athletic League in Detroit. Uh, and we started working with them. And what we would do is, is, is select the better players and put them in a local soccer league. And that has now been expanded. But I've always been struck, for example, when I was with Detroit City, I would be going out sometime and watching uh, Police Athletic League games. And they were played on fields with, with no corner flags, uh, long grass, um, very poor conditions. And I remember this one particular day, I had been at one of those games of the Police Athletic League. And then I had to do some scouting because I was also a scout, U.S. national team scout with U.S. Soccer Federation. So I would then watch um, Bardar or Wolves play. And that was maybe 10 minutes away from the field that I just came from. And it always struck me the huge difference in only 10 minutes of driving between one culture and the other culture. So I think where U.S. soccer is really lacking is they must do much more for inner city kids, because I think there's a, there's a huge amount of potential talent in inner cities. But I don't think U.S. soccer spends enough money in developing young players in inner cities. Okay. Now, what's your take on paying to play system? Well, you know, I always say in, 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 in this country, uh, soccer is pure capitalism. Uh, in other countries, it's pure socialism. So I think we need more socialism in this country uh, because this prevents players from playing at a higher level, they cannot afford it. I can give you an example. I'm living in Holland, Michigan now, and I just started coaching 
I started doing training sessions for an under 18 team, uh, almost all Hispanic kids. Uh, and there's some talent there. Some of those kids could play, I think, for a Bardar or they could play for Wolves team, but they cannot afford it. So this is a team of players where there's some talent, but it's pretty much underdeveloped. They've not had enough coaching at a younger age. I'm getting them now, so they're getting good coaching now. But those players have not been able to play for a premier club, for example, in Grand Rapids, Midwest United. You know, they would have to spend, you know, two, three thousand dollars a year. They, they could not afford it. So basically, in this country, we, we have a two tier system. You know, we have players that have money, whose parents have money, who get top coaching. And then there's a huge area underneath that inner city kids where there's a lot of potential, but they are not getting the proper coaching because their parents cannot afford to pay the fees. So that's a big discrepancy that I think, you know, is holding the game back. Yeah, and I think those changes need to happen, uh, you know, get inner cities more involved in the game. Yeah, I mean, the only thing you can say that one step in the right direction is that MLS clubs now, they all have youth teams uh, and they don't charge their players. So they, they, those, those players pay for, for, play for free. But then you have clubs like Bardar and Bulls who play against MLS clubs, which is, which is now called MLS Next. Yes. Uh, and those kids are paying four or $5,000 a year. You know, we're, we're a poor kid. From, from the inner city of Detroit, who may have the potential to play at that level as well, will never reach that potential because he's not getting the right coaching. Hmm. Coach Glass, last question for you. Who are your top three best players? But the best players I've ever seen? Best players you've ever seen, best players you've ever played against. Well, Boise has won. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> well, you know, then I then I then I go back to 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 me the top three players are are, are uh, uh, Pelé and Messi and uh, Johan Cruyff. Those those are my top three players. Top three coaches. Well, the top coaches that that I would say Guardiola, Johan Cruyff. And maybe uh, Rinus Michels. Oh, I, now you're going back to Holland. I see how you do it. I'm prejudiced. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Coach Glass, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. And I had a good hey, time. Okay, Boise. Nice right, talking to you. you. Yes, sir. Take Thanks. Care, bye. bye. for listening to Telling Our Football Stories and thanks to Coach Glass for sharing his story with us. Have a great day.